Welcome to the Mom Manual. Motherhood doesn't come with instructions, but it should. We are on a mission to highlight ordinary moms doing extraordinary things to build the ultimate mom manual. Every week, I have the distinct honor of speaking with women about the lessons they've learned and the inspiration that got them to where they are today. Join us for a conversation that will spark creativity, provide actionable tips, and celebrate the ordinary and extraordinary moments of motherhood. The Mom Manual starts now. Everyone, Tara Williams here with the Mom Manual. We have another Shark Tank alum to welcome to the podcast today. We have Rachel Nilsson. She is the CEO and founder of Rags. Rachel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. Okay, you guys can't see through the screen, but the first thing I said to her, her hair is tinted pink. And I said, You are the coolest person ever. That is always something I've wanted to do. So I knew this interview was going to be off to a great start. You have a really cool story. I feel like most people who have gone on Shark Tank do, but can you bring us back to 2014? Tell us how you started Rags, how you got on Shark Tank, and just just a quick timeline of, you know, bringing us through to 2020 today. Yeah, I mean, a lot like other moms, there was just a void in the marketplace. And and for me, it was, I wanted something for my little wriggly toddler without the snaps. And I wanted a one piece that was easy to get on and off and looked cool and was comfortable. I'm not a fan of like the skinny jeans t-shirt because it's just not functional. So cut up a t-shirt and sewed it and put it on my little guy. And, and it was like, you go through the neck. So there's an elastic neckline, you go through the neck and you just shimmy it up there, up their body during diaper changes. And I was like, holy cow, like, this is so easy. I posted it on my Instagram. I was at the time selling my kids hand-me-down clothes to make money and people were freaking out. So I took the money that I was making off my kids hand-me-down clothes and put it towards getting more at the time t-shirts to cut up. And I was selling out of those, like the second I would post them. And, and it was almost like painful. Fast forward a few months, I got it into manufacturing. I, I had a little bit of experience with adult stuff prior, never went to school for it, but like, I've always been into fashion. So I knew, you know, I, lesson, lesson from that experience was don't stay behind your sewing machine forever. Like you're going to burn out. And so the moment I saw that this could actually be a thing and there's other moms out there that were like totally needing what I needed and what I wanted, I got into manufacturing and then Shark Tank came to Utah for auditions. And my nanny at the time was like, Rachel, I will watch your kids like, you know, go in an audition. Yeah. So I, it's like the funniest story. I went up there just on a whim. I was calling my accountant like, Hey, what are my numbers? I'm going to go audition for Shark Tank. Yeah. And I threw like a couple rompers in my purse. She was walking through my numbers while we were driving up to Salt Lake to audition. And I showed up and we were pretty early, but there's a ton of people there. So They give you like a ticket and they're like, go sit and wait in line and kind of gave us the rundown. So you go and you, I don't know if it's the same, it probably is, but you go and you pitch in front of one producer and there's, you know, 10 producers there and you're, you have a 10 minute window where you can like hurry up and do your spill. And, and then it's like, okay, move on. So they told me that was kind of the process. That was all I knew. And I was like, well, there is like 300 and so people here. Am I going to be waiting forever? He's like, probably. So I was like, cool. I'm just going to go back to work and then I'll come back up in like an hour. Yeah. So (laughs) I came back home and I work, I like worked a little bit and, and then I went back up and the line was gone 
And I was like, oh, no more cars really in the parking lot. And I got out of the car and I see a guy busting out the front doors with like a headpiece, like headset on. Yeah. And it's, and it's the guy that told me to go home for a little bit and come yeah. back. And he's like, they were running way ahead of schedule. They're done, but they're all, all the producers are in the, the room eating lunch. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I was like, I still want to pitch. And, and he was like, well, let's go. We'll see what we can do. So I was legit running into the building, like kind of winded. I didn't even have time to really prepare. It actually wasn't until after that I learned that you go one-on-one with a producer. Like I was incredibly unprepared. I knew I had a great story. I knew I had good numbers and it was like kind of one of those things. It's like, why not? You know? So I poke my head into the door where they're all eating lunch and they're like, can we help you? And I was like, you guys, <laughs> my name's Rachel, I'm late, but I've been dying to pitch this to you. And they all kind of like looked at each other and like, like see who, yeah, like what's happening and who wants to like let her pitch. And then one of the producers was like, well, just pitch all of us. So I was like, okay. So I did. And it ended up being rad because I was able to stay in there a little bit longer than 10 minutes and to kind of chum with them, tell yeah. my story. They were super impressed with the story and then, and then the numbers that we'd already done. And I got a call back the next day. So, and at this point you had been in business for about a year. Yeah, I was coming up on a year. Yeah. I love that so much. And I, I truly feel like everyone who goes on Shark Tank, not only is a super cool story, but has a weird moment like that. I have not shared this on the podcast, but for me, I had actually done it online and the submission portal is like pretty much a paragraph. I mean, there's not a lot you can say. So I'm like, how could anybody even evaluate if this is good, bad, or indifferent? Right. So little that you can submit. And so I did get a call from one of the producers and I actually thought it was like a prank type thing. I'm like, there's no way that this is the producer. And so anyways, we get on the call and telling the story. He loves our story. Similar to yours where my back was against the wall. Like I needed to make money kind of thing. And then we got to the the part where he said, you know, how much have you sold? And we were pre-launched. So I said, you know, zero. And he's like, it it was just the music stopped. He was not interested. He's like, well, you know, our, our sharks like to see numbers and you know, it's not gonna be fit. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait, I'm going to go on a Kickstarter. I'm going to do a Kickstarter. And at the time I knew I was going to do it at some point, but I was like next month (laughs) and I was not ready for it. And he was like, okay, well call me back if you do the Kickstarter and how that goes. And so I, this is so bizarre that I did this, but I started making sound clips and I would email them to him. So I would be talking like, Hey, this is Tara. Like, just wanted to give you a heads up. Here's where we're at. You know, this, this, isn't this, because I thought there would be a greater connection if I was talking versus just sending emails. So eventually, of course they said, you know, yes, you're accepted. And they matched me up with an assistant producer. And by the time I actually got to filming, which that initial call was in March of 2019. And then we filmed in September of 2019, the same month I launched my website. But by the time we got there, he said to me, nobody has ever wanted to be on this show as much as you. And like, the whole time I was like, oh, we know Tara from dreamland. Like, because I had just had reaching out. Yes. Like over and over and over till finally, I think he was like, fine, just come on the show. Like, geez, leave me alone. But I love that you went back in. I mean, not a lot of people would do that. They would say, I missed it. And that's it. And turn back. But the fact that you went in and busted into somebody's lunch. I mean, that shows willpower. So I love that. 
So for all the moms that have a side hustle or something on their heart to start or at a job they hate and want to start their own thing, Rachel is going to give us three takeaways on how she got from Shark Tank to where Rags is today. So Rachel, do you want to jump into the first one? Yeah. I mean, our business model is kind of unique where we launched just basically out of necessity. It was it was like, I can only get a certain amount of prints of fabric. It was remnant fabric. So when we would release stuff, it would sell out really fast. It evolved into this limited edition model, which I find like incredibly powerful. So when you asked me what my three takeaways were, it, it can relate to any business, honestly, but it was stay disciplined, you know, especially in the business that we're in, like we can leave, we leave a lot of revenue you know, hanging out there where things are selling out in three minutes. And it's like, we're capping, we're putting a cap on, on how much money we can actually make. But because that is the model that we've chosen, I think it's really just stay disciplined in that. And, and it feels so counterintuitive sometimes, but people crave authenticity. And I think, you know, if you're good at not chasing every little thing down and, and going after every dollar, you can really lose your brand and your voice. So staying disciplined is important. I think that's important in, in any aspect of your life. Right. So taking that and making sure you're always checking in early on, I got that advice and I'm so grateful for it. Okay. So you're talking about leaving revenue on the table because you are making such small batches. Mm -hmm. And so you're basically, you're saying it would be a lot easier to make bigger batches and get more revenue, but then it essentially breaks the model. Yep. yep. So with, with your business, it became this limited edition model just because of how it started where you were a single sewer, right? Yes, totally. And I mean, yes, I was a single sewer and it kind of came out of necessity, but even when we went into manufacturing, we couldn't order grayish goods like blank fabrics in that quantity. And I was building this business based on the income I was making selling hand-me-down clothes. So I didn't have like a grip of money I could just throw into, you know, fabric. I flew to the fashion district in LA and I was buying up remnant fabric from, you know, these stores where like I could not get that print ever again. So we'd come across a camo or a floral. And once it was sold, like cut and sewn and sold, I really couldn't duplicate that. And so it kind of came out of like, that's just the way it was. And then I started realizing like people, especially women, like they need an outlet, like, you know, how can I create this experience for them when they're shopping? And this became that, like it was, it was like a black Friday every single week for women. And it was like breaking up their day. And we would get comments on our Instagram when we would release that people were in labor and they were getting on at drop time to buy, or people were pulling off the freeway at 10 AM to get on and buy. And I was catching on to that and realizing like, wow, there is some serious magic in this, this model. And then, you know, secondary, what came from that was there was this marketplace where people are buying and selling and trading used rags. And it was because of the limited edition aspect. So it became such a big part of our, our brand and our story. And, and it was a lot of it was just cool and unique, but it was the experience that we were giving to these amazing parents and, and moms. That's mostly why it's like, it was so important for me to stay disciplined rather than just going really, really deep and catching all of the dollars who knows, like how that would have affected us. I don't, I don't imagine it would have been smart, you know? Yeah. That's really interesting. And for anyone who is listening, that doesn't know what remnant fabric is. Can you explain that real quick? 
Yeah. So it's, you know, like we would get stuff from Juicy Couture or bigger businesses like that, that are, they go into manufacturing, they don't use all of their fabric. Then they take that and sell it to like a secondhand fabric store. So a lot of their customers are people that are just going in and buying three yards. You know, it's, it wasn't like big giant bulk, uh, rolls of fabric. It was basically leftovers. <laughs> so it was essentially leftovers, which are limited quantities and she can't reorder. So between having not a lot of money to buy big batches, so buying these micro batches, and then as you scaled up, you were a single sewer. And then what did that look like next? Did you bring on a second sewer? Did you start going to a, like a manufacturing house? How did you go from just you to, you know, where you are now? Yeah. So I brought on a factory, right? Honestly, like three months in. And so I wasn't really, I was sewing a lot in the beginning, but because I saw that there was such a demand for this, that was the first thing I did was I outsourced sewing. Um, so it was really early on and I had no idea what I was doing. I just asked around and I found a, I found a local factory, which is shocking in Utah and went down there and met with the factory owners and asked them like, how do I how do I do this? And they, they, you know, they pointed me in the right direction where I could go get remnant fabrics, where I could find a pattern maker to help digitize the pattern. Because at the time I just had like a physical pattern that I had made and I'm not into pattern making, but I had kind of just jerry-rigged a pattern. So it was a cool experience because it made me realize like, if I am just brave enough to ask, so many people were willing everybody had to start somewhere and I didn't need to walk in there and pretend like I was an expert. Like people were so willing to help when I was just vulnerable and asking for it. And I think that's like a good lesson still, you know, it's still so helpful. It's like that in your personal life, you know, as a, as a mom and as a friend and as a, whatever, you know, whatever your role is, like, I think that it's kind of refreshing to see how willing people are to help. That is definitely one thing that I hear over and over while interviewing women on my podcast or even listening to other podcasts. And I think it's because we've all started in that place. So same thing. I got so much help and now people reach out to me all the time. I mean, Mm -hmm. I just had somebody, um, I grew up in Boston. I live in California now, but I had somebody from home that knew a friend of mine and he reached out and I mean, I set him up with the people who we started with doing our advertising and influence, you know, like on a platter. I'm like, here, do these three things and you'll double your revenue next month. And he's like, you're amazing. Thank you. And I'm like, so many people help me. I think just genuinely at the heart of it, people are good and they want to pass that forward. Rachel, I do think you are unique. And this is why you're a CEO and a successful one, because not everybody is brave enough to take that first step. And, you know, go into a lunchroom and pitch or ask people to, you know, help them out and find factories and make those connections. And it kind of goes along the same lines as what we just discussed with staying disciplined is learning when to say yes and no, which is, which is, I think a lot of people hear this, but I'm so grateful that I knew that early on. We did the Shark Tank episode. I think the Holy Grail for like, mompreneurs or, or any mom in general, or is, is like Nordstrom for whatever reason they have like, well done Nordstrom because they have this like halo effect where if you say like, we're in Nordstrom, suddenly you're like a legit brand. And that's, that's huge kudos to Nordstrom because they've created that. Right. But that is, and was kind of like the Holy grail. And when we did this episode, this is a really funny story, but I actually reached out to Nordstrom and you cannot find the baby buyers 
anywhere, like anywhere, anywhere. And they don't give you that, that access because everybody would be calling the baby buyers at Nordstrom. And so I like found a number on their website to accounting. Cause of course that's like, you know, they're collecting money. So they want that to be really easy to get into. <laughs> so I called the accounting department and I was like, Hey, they accidentally transferred me to you. Can you transfer me back into the baby buyer? <laughs> oh, that's amazing. I love that idea. And the, they, the baby buyer answered and she actually had seen my shark tank episode. So it was awesome. Cause I introduced myself and I told her, you know, and she's like, Oh my gosh, I saw you guys on shark tank. And, and we placed our first PO with them and it sold out within seconds. It was like crazy. And they were like, Holy cow, this is insane. Can we order more? I was a small business, you know, and, and they placed a half a million dollar PO like two weeks later. And I was like, woof, that's a chunk of money. Yeah. Like that is awesome. And it's Nordstrom. And the more I started thinking about it, the more I realized like how not ready we were to grow and scale with Nordstrom. Mm -hmm. And it was like, oh, that would be so nice to have that cash. But at the same time, it was like, Rachel, you're feeding crumbs to a gorilla. You really don't know who your customer is. You haven't nailed down the fit of your product. Like it's really not at a place where you can grow and scale and take that like nationwide. So I actually ended up keeping my relationship really, really healthy and good with, with the buyer, but declining their PO. That must've been probably one of the hardest decisions you, you made. Yeah, it was painful, but it was in the end, I look back now and I'm like, I would have never been able to take on that beast. Like anybody that's, that's in Nordstrom understands there's, there's a lot to that. And we just really weren't ready. So grateful I did that because, you know, I was able to reach back out a couple of years later when we had the team to support it and we're in Nordstrom now, but, but I think if we would have done that, we would have crashed and burned and, and who knows what, what would have happened there. So same thing happened to Disney. Um, they reached out and it was, it was same thing. I had to, I had to tell them no and kept that relationship warm and went back and, and, you know, we launched, we launched Disney, Star Wars and Marvel a couple of years later. But again, we just were not ready. We were barely hanging on trying to keep up with our current demand. And I knew I was, I was sacrificing revenue, but it was so good that I was able to say no, because I think again, that would have probably crashed and burned and we wouldn't have done it we wouldn't have done our brand proud. Like I, I knew that and, and it was hard, but it all came, it all came full circle for sure. I think I have an idea of why you weren't ready, but for anyone who's listening, they're probably thinking, well, what do you mean? What does right. that mean not be ready? Right. I mean, for us, it was like team, like, you know, you go on, you go on shark tank and, and like you mentioned, we were barely a year in. Right. So I was like, holy cow, I can't like, I was still shipping orders ourselves and I was doing everything pretty much like with three other people. So right there, it was team was huge. And then, you know, fulfillment centers, which, you know, they, they take your product and they pick pack and ship it to customers, um, website inventory management. Like we were still manually counting everything and we had just barely gotten on a website that could support traffic. And, you know, so there was a bunch of factors going into that, but I would say just the, the team in general, like we were super thin and we were just trying to keep up with current demand from, from the show, you know? Yeah. So it was really manpower. You didn't have enough manpower to yep. support what goes into that. 
you know, I think ours was, ours was pretty similar where I wanted to be Nordstrom and I, and Nordstrom was actually our, also our first wholesale account. And yes, when you're in Nordstrom, then every other account, all of a sudden Bloomingdale's wanted us target. I mean, everywhere was like, oh yeah, yeah, we'll take you where before nobody would mm-hmm. even answer a call from me. And I think in the, the fluid space where I hear this a lot is um, Whole Foods. So they'll open the door a lot of times for small brands. And then once you kind of have that stamp of approval, that's where I hear a lot of brands going nationwide. Yeah, we we couldn't get a response from Nordstrom. And then as soon as we were on Shark Tank, they emailed us right after, oh, we saw that you you know were emailing us. And their orders with us were, uh, we actually did it a little bit different. We stayed online. So it allowed us to control the inventory. And if mm-hmm. we, we ran out, we just shut it off. And then when we were back on, you know, we turned it back on, but yeah, there's definitely a time and a place for every type of expansion. If that's even like, I'm primarily on Instagram and now I want to start a TikTok account. It's like, well, do you have somebody who can run it? Because yeah. these things don't just start and, and begin on their own. And actually- yep. Speaking of Instagram, you guys have an amazing following. Can you talk a little bit about how you develop that community? And when you talk about these dropping and immediately selling out, how did people hear of it? How did that happen? You know, what did that look like? Yeah, I think in the beginning we, Instagram was fairly new and, and it was kind of like the wild, wild west and influencer wasn't as big as it was now, but still super important. And my biggest focus was I had no budget for marketing and Instagram was free, but I wanted to, you know, get my product in the right hands. So I started right out the gate. Like every day I would screenshot while I was at the park with my kids or whatever, I would screenshot like 20 or 30, you know, influencer type people that I was like, these guys would be awesome to carry rags or to wear my clothing and, and hopefully post. Um, And then in the night I would put my kids to bed and I would get my computer out and I would email all of them, you know, throughout the night. And in the beginning, you know, a couple of people would say yes, most would say no. And then as your brand started to grow and more and more people were starting to hear about it, you get a lot more yeses. So it started very organic. In fact, we, we got picked up by the Huffington Post and Vogue and all these cool like publications just by word of mouth through, through Instagram and making sure that we were authentic and who we were sending product to. And then, you know, because of our model, I mentioned that there's these, these spun up communities online where they were going and buying and selling rags. But more than that, I was, I was realizing like, you know, these moms were like craving something more than just a product. And it was such a, like, you don't, you don't necessarily think through that when you're launching a business like this, it's almost like best case scenario. And, and, I was seeing photos of moms meeting up in Japan with all of their kids dressed in rags and for a rags play date. And you know, so it was, yeah, it was so cool. And I realized early on that people, one, they wanted to support and two, they, they loved the product and the experience. And, and there was an emotion here and it wasn't just, you know, going into Gap or Zara and buying something. It was like, it was more than that. And I think, I think our community has stayed really engaged and amazing because they crave that authenticity. And I I see it more and more, you know, where I think what's leading in great brands right now is brands that have that type of community and, and what's driving the community is authenticity. And, you know, we're, we're so transparent online and there's so, it's so much crazier than it was 10 years ago, but I think really tapping into that and making sure you're staying true to that 
the the community will come, you know, and they'll want to they'll want to support it. So that that's kind of been our experience, and and obviously we've grown on that. And I've been really fortunate. It's it's actually been in, like life changing to see, you know, what's spun from from a mom making a product that that she needed. <laughs> yeah, it's really incredible. And as a business owner who launched the very end of 2019, opportunity to grow organically on Instagram really isn't there. Um, right. What I would compare now is I think in 10 years, people are going to look back and go, oh my gosh, in 2020, when you could grow on, on TikTok, mm-hmm. like that's the same thing where we'll see those brands with millions of followers that they grew really organically and quickly and naturally. So for someone who's saying, yes, that was a great idea in 2014. And you could just have, you could go on and, you know, now any influencer, they have 500 followers, they want to be paid something. So how would you say your marketing has changed today, specifically with Instagram and influencers than when you first started? I mean, yeah, it is so different. And I mentioned this Instagram when we started really was the wild, wild west. And I think it's very similar to TikTok now, which that's something that, that we are just getting started doing because of what we're seeing. It's like, it's kind of like the Instagram when we started. So I think just making sure you have your head on a swivel and what I've realized, like you've never, ever paid an influencer and, 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 you know, that, that has nothing to do with us not being willing, but I just didn't have the budget at the time. And then as we were growing, we had so many influencers reaching out to us because they wanted to be affiliated and aligned with a cool brand, you know, and that's because we stayed incredibly authentic to our brand. And so it kind of all comes full circle there where there's ways that you can do it on a very low slim budget. It's just, again, being brave enough to reach out and bold enough to reach out and then, and then accepting that not everybody's going to say yes, right out of the gate, you know, and being okay with that. Are you guys still using influencers today? Oh yeah, totally. I think that's so important. Absolutely. So how, how does that look? Are you mostly having to, to pay influencers or do you still find that some people will do it for product exchange? Yeah. I mean, a lot of people will do it for product exchange. We are just digging into possibly carving out some budget to start paying influencers. What we've done in the past was giving them a portion of the sales. Okay. So if, you know, if they're selling a certain product, we'll give them X percent of what they sell that day so that it's a win-win because obviously that's a job too, you know, and I want to be respectful, but that's kind of like where we're at now, but I, I've always told my team, there is value in impressions. And I think seeing like Amazon's basically, you know, review based, we're so much more likely to purchase if we're seeing a friend talk about it or a person that we really admire talk about it rather than, you know, just off of Google search. So I I think that influencers always going to be relevant. Yeah. And influencers are something that, that we use, but you know, when we launched and when I started working with influencers probably wasn't until really the beginning of last year, I would say in any meaningful way. And at that point it was just, we, we do have some people that will do a commission, but any of the really big influencers, they, they definitely want to be paid kind of upfront, which is scary for a new mm-hmm. brand. When you have someone that says they want you to pay them $7,000 and there's no guarantee of success. I mean, it's guaranteed they'll post it, but it doesn't necessarily mean you'll make $7,000 back. You could have no sales from it. So the influencer piece is always a little tricky, but I do agree. It helps build community and 
you know, if you are working with influencers who really represent your, your brand and that, that brings in that authenticity piece, aligning with somebody who's very similar to you. That's a huge, huge, huge takeaway from any sort of business or founder or boss, or honestly, as a human being is relationships matter. And even if it's a hard, difficult, awkward conversation, there's always a way to have that when in the end it's like high fives, hugs, let's stay in touch. So my goal was just to be incredibly honest and and to tell them exactly where we were. And, and I remember having that conversation. I remember exactly where I was and, and explaining to Nordstrom that, that I didn't even really understand my consumer. And I wanted to dig into that piece before I fed those crumbs to a gorilla. Um, I didn't, I didn't feel comfortable going into retail that soon where Nordstrom, they're so powerful that if, if I became at their mercy, it was almost like they'd become my boss and they would be telling me who my consumer was. And I just wasn't, I didn't want to go into that. You know, it was almost like going into something blind and I wasn't ready for it. And, and to be honest with you, I think that that made them respect me and the brand even more, you know, cause they want to align themselves with good, solid, authentic brands. And they wanted a piece of our community and they wanted our consumer. And so I think it fared really well for us. And it was the exact same thing with Disney, you know, just like keeping that relationship warm. I would be sending them product on occasion. And, and just kind of like you mentioned with shark tank, you would call and leave voice memos. It was like, I was always there but honest with them where we were at as a business. And, and if anything, they're, they're going to be more stoked to take us on when I'm like, Hey, I can't even keep up with our current demand. You know, they're going to be like, well, that's kind of awesome. So So you almost made, you almost played hard to get, which made you more attractive to them. Right. It's like, we didn't need it. You know, I think at the time we were doing more than what we could even handle, you know? So it was like, why would I continue to pile on and just not do anything great, then focus on what we're really good at. And, and then, you know, when we're ready, we'll take it. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully they're okay too, but that's the value in being really relationship driven, you know, is keeping, keeping tabs and making sure that you're not burning bridges along the way. Okay. So final question, cause I could talk about this all day, but were there any scenarios where you had said no, and then you came back and they were like, Nope, sorry. You said no. No, (laughs) honestly, like I think, yeah, I I don't think that's ever happened. And it's just because keeping those relationships warm and and being authentic and honest, I think people are, they understand it. They get it. They, they, you know, they're, they're running a business too. So I'm, I'm trying to think if that's ever happened as far as like with an employee or a hire or, and nothing's like coming to the top of my mind. I'm sure it's, I'm sure it has happened, but I've probably moved on because you don't have time to dwell. I was going to say, you can't remember it. Yeah, it probably yeah. wasn't late. It probably wasn't a big deal. Right. Okay, Rachel, we have a super quick fire round. It helps our guests get to know you a little oh, no. So it's super easy. We'll jump in. Um, <laughs> what are you currently binging on TV? So I am the worst because I never can be a part of like the Netflix conversation. I like don't ever get into anything. But recently I've gotten into Ozarks. It's like amazing. I love it. Yeah. Yep. I have watched that a little bit. I thought it was pretty good. Okay. What is the most recent book you've read? Oh my gosh. I love Yvonne Chouinard. So he's the founder of Patagonia and he wrote a book called let my people go surfing. 
And it's just all about their business and, you know, the journey and then culture. Oh, I definitely want to read that. I love it. Okay. What's your go-to productivity app? Productivity app? Uh, I don't even have one. You should see my phone. It is like 300 misread texts, 6,000. So you should tell me what yours is. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay. So for my work, it's Asana and and Slack, I would say those two. And we use Slack, yeah. For personal, it's um, the cozy app. So it can connect me, my husband, and we have someone who helps out with the kids. So like who's driving who, where? That is genius. C-O-Z-I. I I, I need to be paid to promote them because I tell everyone about it. Um, (laughs) Okay. Last one. What is your go-to de-stressor? Ooh, my go-to de-stressor. I love, love, love yoga and mountain biking. I think just moving, moving my body, but, but if I can be outside doing something that's a little bit scary, that is like, I come home like, wow, nothing seems as stressful as it was 20 minutes ago. So I love that. Scare yourself a little bit every day. Yeah. (laughs) Awesome. Rachel, thank you so much. So for everyone listening that wants to check out your super rad clothes, where can they find you? rags.com is our website and then our handle on instagram is rags to rachel's my name's rachel and we have not changed it it is still rags to rachel's on on instagram but rags.com awesome thanks rachel have a great day thank you